All right, so uh, as you turn into Colossians 1, uh, I do have notes through the end of chapter 1, um, and hopefully we can get through that uh, so that we can. I would ask that if you have any questions to hold them to the end, unless it's just a burning question or you're confused by something I say and you need some clarity. That way we can hopefully get through chapter one. But I, I mentioned this book to you, I believe it was last week. This is how used the copy was. I bought it and they had cut the edge of the cover off, I guess, so it would mail easier. I don't know. But on both sides, I think I paid like 75 cents for it. Mm. Um, I paid more for shipping than I did for the book. Um, but it's in, in fine condition on the inside. But anyway, it's uh, Henry, Henry Chadwick, uh, the early church. It's a very good uh, short uh, treatment of uh, the early church. And he also includes like the transition from uh, the New Testament era to the early church. And what I wanted to read to you was uh, just some of what he says about kind of what Paul and the apostles were facing as they went out and planted these churches. And he mentions Colossae in it. And it's in a section on uh, Gnosticism, and, and he'll kind of give a definition of that. He says, Among his Gentile converts, Paul soon met doctrinal tendencies of which he did not approve, and which called for delicate but firm correction. At Corinth, so 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, a spiritual aristocracy, so basically a group of leaders, as it were, were inclined to pride themselves on the possession of profounder wisdom and deeper mystical experiences than their brethren, or even than the apostle himself. Believing themselves to be already perfect, they regarded their fellow Christians as inferior beings who had not risen to the truly supernatural heights. They were also dualists, believing that the spirit is everything and the body is nothing, if not actually evil. This belief had immediate moral consequences. Some Corinthians concluded that physical acts were a matter of indifference. Kind of explains 1 Corinthians 5 with the man sleeping with uh, the woman who he's related to. Taking encouragement from Paul's doctrine of freedom from the law and regarding the sacraments as magical guarantees of automatic bliss, they fell into moral license. A rival group adopted extreme ascetic opinions so that husbands and wives withheld conjugal rights from one another and betrothed couples abstained from consummating their marriage. That sounds familiar. Consistent with this dualism, they rejected as crude the Hebraic doctrine of the resurrection of the body, which is why Paul spends so much time on the resurrection in First and Second Corinthians. Um, preferring the Platonic doctrine of the immortality of the soul. In any event, to those who were already perfect, resurrection could add nothing. They saw no harm in eating meat offered in sacrifice to idols, which they knew to be non-existent. At Colossae, in Asia Minor, Paul met with graver, greater, worse heresy, a syncretistic amalgam, so basically like a, a smoothie, <laughs> of Christianity with theosophical elements drawn partly from the mystery cults and partly from heterodox Judaism. 
the Colossian Christians were being persuaded to worship immediate, or excuse me, intermediate angelic powers, identified with the heavenly bodies, and believed to possess a power to determine human fate unbroken by the gospel. Special ceremonies and strict ascetic practices were enjoined with feast days drawn from the Jewish calendar. And I'll, I'll just stop right there. So that kind of gives you uh, the idea of what they were facing, um, some of the issues, which is to say, uh, much like we have today when the gospel comes somewhere, it comes into a context. It comes uh, into a people that already have issues and beliefs and thoughts and all those things, and they have to be addressed. And Colossians is, uh, you know, the record of some of the things that Paul had to address. So as we, uh, you know, we can look to our handout now, and I, I gave you, uh, hopefully much to the joy of Mr. Ed, a chiastic structure there to start, um, and it lays out... Um, what G.K. Beale sees as this section that belongs together in Colossians. So it would begin at verse 24. We're going to start at 21, but he sees uh, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5 as being a section, and he's drawing on the words there, right? So you see in A and A prime, I guess you could call it, that rejoicing is in play in both, right? So chapter 124, chapter 2, verse 5. And then in B and B prime, you have the same ideas, making known or knowledge, riches and mystery, chapter 1, verse 27, chapter 2, verse 2. And then C and C prime would be struggling or struggle, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, and chapter 2, verse 1. So with, with uh, the Lord's help, we're going to work through 21 uh, through 29. I doubt we'll have time to get into chapter 2, but we'll see. So let me read that for us. Colossians 1, 21 through 29. It says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions, or that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, in my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the church." Whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Amen. So beginning at verse uh, 21 through 22, those two uh, go together, and we'll look at that quote from Bullinger in just a second. Um, 
But notice in verses 21 and 22 that you have uh, basically three things stated. You have in verse 21, all the way until the very last phrase, what the Colossians were redeemed from. All right, so what were they redeemed from? Alienation and being enemies in their mind through their wicked works. The second thing you have after being redeemed from is redeemed through or redeemed by what they were redeemed or who they were redeemed by. End of verse 21. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, right? So the body of Christ's flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, whom Paul has just spent, right, all those verses uh, extolling his glory and the wisdom of God in him. It is through Christ that they have been redeemed from alienation and being enemies in their minds, which is significantly where their issues were, the way they were thinking about things. And it was in the body of his flesh, not just in his life, but through all the way to his death, including the cross of Christ. Remember the blood of his cross in verse 20. But we've got redeemed from, we've got redeemed through, and then we've got redeemed for. What were they redeemed for? To be presented holy and unblameable and reprovable in his sight. So you've got basically in those two verses a summary of the gospel. That Christ has redeemed the Colossians from this, that he is the one who has redeemed them, and that he has redeemed them for a purpose, namely that God, as we see in uh, you know well-known chapters like Ephesians two, that we were dead in sin, then Christ came, redeemed us, and then it, as Paul says later on in that chapter, for works to be presented to the Father. All right, so redeemed from, redeemed through, and redeemed for is all right there in verses twenty-one and twenty-two. And let's look at the quote that Bollinger has there for us uh, on your your handout. It says, In order to encourage their spirits in eagerness and joy, he forcibly reminds them of their earlier lives, calling to mind their old way of life and then the new quality of life they've been given by Christ, in whom they ought to progress even further. Look at this. He brings up Ephesians 2. Paul follows the same pattern at the beginning of Ephesians 2. Indeed, he says, You used to be totally alienated from the living and true eternal God, being slaves to many gods and dumb images. Your minds were entirely corrupt and depraved, imbued with opinions that produced evil works and such putrid fruit as to give abundant testimony to the worth of the tree. Paul emphasizes this because of the way he intends to develop the passage. It is indeed not enough to say you were alienated, but moreover, he adds, you were also enemies to God in your minds. This shows, in the end, the fount from which flow all words and deeds, all thoughts and deep corruptions. And just like an infection of poison, it is not possible to shed it save by death. But God, who is rich in mercy, does not treat us according to our sins, but reconciled us through Christ. This indeed clothes the flesh, talking about ours. It submerges this death and makes satisfaction for our sins 
so that he may make us holy and cleanse us of all our offenses. But there is indeed a further reason right, for the Lord's death. He's redeemed for or redeemed uh, to something. That is, he did not just purge our sins so that we could plunge further into an abyss of vice and wallow in the filth of evil. Rather, he purged our sins so that we might live in his sight, irreproachable and blameless. Therefore, you are certainly redeemed, protected, and granted the innocence of life important element of the gospel that he brings out there is that prior to receiving Christ, prior to being reconciled to God through Christ, you are not just alienated from him, but you are enemies of him. It's a tremendous understanding that we uh, need to keep in mind as we uh, live lives of gratitude to Christ, but also as we uh, evangelize, right? As you share the gospel with uh, people in various ways and try to bring Christ to your unbelieving family, you have to view them not as those who are just confused, but as those who are enemies of God. That's quite a different nuance than simply saying you are alienated from God. We're comfortable with that. You're separated from God because of your sin. But you're also his enemy. And that through Jesus Christ, you are not only brought back to him, but as Christ says, you're made his friend. Abraham was a friend of God. Through Christ... Servants come, uh, become friends of God. Then in verse 23, he's connecting with uh, the end of 22, where we are presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. But notice, he begins it with conditional language. And he lays out what we call perseverance here. Verse 23, the beginning, uh, lays out the need dare I say, requirement of perseverance and a description of what it looks like. Notice he, he heaps all this, uh, these wonderful accolades about what is true through the atonement of Christ, through his death uh, and those who receive it. They're, um, they're reconciled to God. They're no longer enemies. They're saved from their wicked works. It's through the body of his flesh, through death, to present them holy But then he says, if, right? If you continue in this, and we'll get into what this is for just a second. But we have to also not just affirm that outside of God's mercy in Christ that we are enemies of God and alienated from him, but that Paul and the scriptures throughout warn us that we aren't to have such an assumption about that salvation that we lay down and take it easy, right? He says, if you continue, right, in the faith and da 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 and all that stuff, right, that you will be presented, you will have received this, and you will be fully reconciled uh, to God through Christ. Those things from verse 21 to 22 will only be true of you It would only be true of the Colossians if you continue in this faith. And what does continuing in the faith look like? Well, if you look at the phrase, uh, from the hope of the gospel, I think that the three previous, uh, there are three terms previous to that, 
that accent uh, how Paul describes continuing in the faith, that you are grounded in the hope of the gospel, that you're settled in the hope of the gospel, and you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Right? All those are given right there at the beginning of verse 23. If you continue in the faith, grounded, settled, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Right? So being grounded in something, you have a firm standing, not an arrogant standing, not a presumptive standing, but a trustful standing. Right? You have a, a settled spirit, as it were, in the gospel. You're not like the Colossians running around looking for other mediators or saviors. But you hang on to the hope of the gospel, not moving away from it. Maybe to use Old Testament language, not turning to the right or to the left. All those things must be true if you will have this glorious salvation that Paul describes in verses 21 through 22. Then to look at, who is this here? Uh, The next quote, this is Calvin. Um, Let's talk about what he says here about perseverance. Uh, He says, this is on your handout, I think it's on the back, on page 2, sort of, but it's not numbered to. Um, it's easier for me to keep all the notes in one running document, so that's why your page numbers are weird every week. Uh, that way I don't have, at the end of this lesson, 15 or, or 25 different documents of Sunday school notes. They're all just in one place. All right, so let's look at this quote here from Calvin. He says, Here we have an exhortation to perseverance, by which he admonishes them that all the grace that had been conferred upon them hitherto would be vain unless they persevered in the purity of the gospel. And thus he intimates that they are still only making progress and have not yet reached the goal. For the stability of their faith was at that time exposed to danger through the stratagems of the false apostles, the false teaching that they were facing. Now he paints in lively colors assurance of faith when he bids the Colossians be grounded and settled in it. For faith is not like mere opinion, which is shaken by various movements, but has a firm steadfastness, which can withstand all the machinations of hell. Hence the whole system. Here he's going to, Dunk on the Roman Catholics. He says, Hence the whole system of popish theology will never afford even the slightest taste of true faith, which holds it as a settled point that we must always be in doubt respecting the present state of grace as well as respecting final perseverance. He afterwards takes notice also of relationship which subsists between faith and the gospel when he says that the Colossians will be settled in the faith only in the event of their not falling back from the hope of the gospel. That is, the hope which shines forth upon us through the means of the gospel, for where the gospel is, there is the hope of everlasting salvation. Let us, however, bear in mind that the sum of all is contained in Christ. Hence, he enjoins it upon them here to shun all doctrines which lead away from Christ, so that the minds of men are otherwise occupied. Now, some will take teachings like this, uh, the need to preach Christ, and really, really struggle with preaching works, 
with preaching the need for living according to the third use of the law, as if that's what uh, is ultimately in view here, right? The third use of the law, what do you mean? The third use of the law would be how the law is our um, example for living, right? So the first use of the law is to reveal the nature of God, or the character of God. The second use of the law is to bring us to Christ, show that we cannot keep the law, ultimately, and then in Christ, we are turned back to the law as our um, form for living, as it were. Right? So uh, we don't preach Christ in such a way that we never deal with obedience. But we also don't preach obedience in such a way that we never deal with Christ. Right? Paul is holding those two things in tension. Right? We read verses 21 to 22, and we're like, man, let up, right? But then he gives that word, if, right? if you continue. And it's continuing not in trusting in yourself, not in anything outward, but in the faith that is uh, what that which will ground you, settle you, and cause you to not be moved away from the hope of the gospel, right? And there's a tension here, right? Because we, and I think rightly so, believe in what we call perseverance of the saints, right? But what that often becomes is presumption of the saints. It's a reformed version. It can be. I'm not saying the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I'm saying the way it's often taken is that it becomes a reformed version of the Baptist idea of walking the aisle, praying the prayer, getting baptized, and nothing ever matters after that. It's just a reformed version of it. Right? The scriptures give us no place to think that anyone who lives in disobedience to Christ should receive assurance. None. Right? Because we're called constantly to persevere and to press on in Christ, to hold on to it. It's all done in Him. But we have to hold on to him by faith. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get sidetracked, but what you said, as I'm going through table talk this week, as I mentioned earlier, they're focusing on the works of the Holy Spirit, what he was given for. If you remember, it, it, as it's presented, certainly his role uh, through Pentecost and give, equipping them in the process, but, but the teaching that I'm getting says it goes beyond that, and the Holy Spirit is the one that is active in that role to enable us to keep the ifs out of the way in the process, mm -hmm. that that he plays that role in keeping us true to the mind of Christ. And mm -hmm. That that's a work. So it's not of ourselves. I guess what I'm trying sure. to do, we shouldn't be taking any pride out of that or mm -hmm. thinking we got to, like you said, it's not a works mentality in that doing that. Yeah. But that's an, a confidence or a comfort that the fact that we're turning away from false teaching, mm -hmm. that we're staying in God's word, that we're continuing in prayer, that we're doing all those things that we need to do. Again, like I said, I'm, that's deep in me still trying to, but so correct? Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it's all of grace at right. the end of the day. That uh, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, which is something that if we have time, I'll mention it. But Paul says to work out what God works in. In some ways, sanctification is 100% God and 100% man. Right? But it's 
grace-filled man, Correct. right? Because he stays in the hope of the gospel. What Paul is showing, like just to draw it to the immediate context of Colossians, is that they were believing the gospel from all ways that he could tell. However, if they embraced these false teachings, they would perish in hell forever. Both of those things are true, right? And outwardly, it you know we can see that. What we have a problem with is understanding how that works in what we know to be the power of salvation, right? That God promises his spirit to his people, yet we see people that are turning away from it, turning away from it right? Yeah. That we think have the spirit, which ultimately only God knows, right? But that we can turn away from that in some way. I mean, Paul even says, um, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, but Paul even says that in Hebrews that there were people who had tasted the heavenly gifts, who had received of the Spirit, who had turned away from Christ, and there was no longer a sacrifice for sins for them because they trampled the blood of the covenant underfoot. Right? That's both true uh, in or. The, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints can remain in that. Those who ultimately persevere are God's elect. They are. But as Mr. Lee pointed out, the way the Spirit uses the warnings in the heart of the elect is to bring them in. Right? We hear the warnings and we're like, oh my. Right? And that's the work of the Spirit that causes us to believe their warnings. Warnings are not meant to, to drive away the unfaithful. They're meant to draw in the faithful. They do expose the hypocrite, but that's not their ultimate purpose. You know, the Hebrew 6 was, you know, I mean, we, all, we have the root versus fruit kind of fallacy sometimes we fall into, and we forget the Holy Spirit works at the volitional level, right? So when we say the Holy Spirit's working in us, the Holy Spirit's working on your will. So the fact that you will to obey the law of God, the fact that you will to hear, heed the warnings of God, that is evidence of the root, which is the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Because the unbeliever does not will to do these things. So you go to places like Hebrews 6, there's a sense in which people can temporarily, we know this from our own experience in church, there's a sense where people temporarily, for some other volitional reason outside of them, heed, seem to heed the law of God. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's you know, a heavy impression of you know, the morality or something, right? We see people come in and they're like, oh, they're keeping the rules out. Externally, the fruit looks like our fruit. But then when it matures, mm -hmm. it's rotten. Right, parable of the sower. Right, right. and that's yeah. where the Christian's fruit, although it might be small, right? We might not bear much fruit. And that's an awful other thing that's involved in this too because some bear tenfold, some mm -hmm. bear three, right? But the Christian's fruit is true fruit because the root is the Holy Spirit. I think I see two things too. Uh, that a number one, and like I was telling a friend of mine, this neighbor, I said you got to be part of a Bible believing. I, I, again, I was trying to make generic enough that sure. the case of gospel, uh, you have to be be part of a body, a church body that believes the orthodox teachings of Christ of, of the Bible, what it's saying. It's not polluted. A number one, that's a need to be part of. And you need to be going in that body here because that body is going to keep 
working on. It, you know, you're going to hear it. You're going to be surrounded by other believers. And this is where I think the, the reproof, you know, uh, the, you know, having deacons that are solid that can come up to people and say, you know, mm -hmm. oh, and you need to have that kind of discipline within the church that says, we're, we're not only going to teach the orthodoxy, but the, the doctrines of Christ, but we're also, however uncomfortable it is, we're going to continue to say, how you doing? Yep. We're going to push you, mm -hmm. you know, in that area. You know, yep. it, there's no, I, I, I guess I constantly, you know, you hear, oh, you don't need to, you could be saved, but you might not be part of a church body. Well, I don't know if you could truly exist outside of a church body. I mean, short of not having any church around you at all, that's possible. Right. But um, Not for long, anyway. And the catechism says the ordinary means of salvation is within the church. So God ordinarily works through and in the church. And the Holy Spirit is going to ordinarily drive you to church. But when you live in an age where everybody thinks they're so extraordinary. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> I don't need the ordinary. On the inside of the and looking at your book, I appreciate you giving this extended quote. I was reading it over and sometimes I hear it and I have to read it almost to keep my mind But I saw the word, this shows that in the end the fount from which they flow all of it. Well, what, what is the fountain talking about? And it qualifies that the thoughts of deep corruption that refers back to your minds and where does that say? It's going to go up here in scriptures. And you were once alienated and enemies in your mind by the wicked work. It really emphasizes the reform stress, the you know, on the necessity of the mind. Mm -hmm. What is it? What's the content of our beliefs? What do we believe? Is our mind? Do we really understand? Mm -hmm. So I, I just continues to echo an emphasis that I see when I read the reform. Why I like the reform thought. Mm -hmm is that it, it truly reflects the biblical stress on the mind. You've got the will there. Yeah, God changes the will. Sure, that's, that's a big part of it. Got, they're all together, but it isn't, you know, it isn't like we're, we're animals in Christ. We're not animals driven by our lust. We're, we should be people driven by our mm -hmm. mind. And ultimately, the mind is driven by our will. So yeah, anyway, it's, it's, yeah it's, and as, as you're hinting at, redemption touches the mind, yeah. right? And it gives us that that hunger and that drive. Um, let's move through the rest of this here. Uh, that, as I said about verse 21 and 22, you could basically view it. It is a summary of the gospel. Um, you could summarize, to use Paul's words from verse 23, the hope of the gospel, that the hope of the gospel is given in verse 21 and 22, that those who were alienated have been redeemed through Christ and are to be presented uh, in uh, blamelessness. This is the message they've heard. So we're going to move on to the second half of 23 and try to jump through these last few verses here. This is the message that they've heard, he says. It's not a new one. So the message that they had heard, Paul is reminding them, is at odds with the error that they're tempted to believe. Right? I'm not telling you something I didn't tell you before. I might be extrapolating on it, but this is the message that not only you've heard, but he says every creature under heaven has heard. Right? So think about, just for a second, uh, how Paul in the previous parts of Colossians is talking about creature, uh, created things in heaven, in earth, visible and invisible, and all that stuff. Here, he just draws attention to those who are under heaven, right? those who are on the earth. The gospel had been preached to those who were 
as it were, subjects of redemption in the sense of which he's speaking. He says, not only have they heard it, but every creature under heaven had heard it. And it sounds like the Great Commission because that's what he's talking about. But notice the qualifier, that it is under heaven. And I think what Paul is doing here, to say it a little further, is drawing attention to the fact that the message is the same for all. And it has been and will be proclaimed to all. Under heaven, preaching, uh, the ordinary means, will be the chief way that sinners are reconciled to God through Christ. It's just true. Historically, it's true. Experientially, it's true. The Christ of whom all those lofty things have been spoken previous to this passage. That's the Christ whom we preach. He is the one whose reconciling work is complained. And the audience who must believe this and continue in it are those who are under heaven. This is the message of Paul's gospel. It is the one to which he's been made a minister. And there that word in uh, <clears throat> end of verse 23 and beginning of 25, everybody but Andrew. What's that word in the Greek? What do you think? What, what you minister. Deacon. Deacon. Right? The same word. It is the word for deacon that Paul is drawing on here. Uh, not to change our view necessarily of the office of deacon, that's not the point, but just to show uh, the emphasis of service that he's drawing on here. And he's, he says he, uh, he rejoices even in his sufferings, not just in the message which he's done or the privilege in delivering the message, but the difficulties that come from the work of carrying that message. And then Paul uses, if uh, the if in verse 23 wasn't uh, controversial enough. He uses another one here when he speaks in verse 24, filling up that which is, King James says, behind. Modern translations, I think I'll say lacking. Uh, filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, think about this for a moment. Remember when Paul was confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus? Who did Christ say that Paul was persecuting? him right so when paul draws attention here to the afflictions of christ he's saying that he's been brought into that participation where the when the church is mistreated when paul is mistreated it's really christ who is suffering affliction in a sense right and he's saying that christ has as it were like a a meter or a scale of afflictions that are going to be filled up throughout the age, and that Paul is one of the blips on that scale, right? Um, I kind of, you know, I'm youngish. I played video games, and often in video games they have these these meters that you have to fill up. It looks almost like a thermometer, right? Where as things are accomplished, the, it keeps going up and up and up, and then when you fill it up, it restarts or whatever. But think of the afflictions of Christ like that. That it's a, as it were, a thermometer, like the mercury going up and there is a point at which I would argue it's the second coming of Christ when those afflictions end but Paul has been brought into this and he shares in it with them and he's uh, advancing as it were uh, the afflictions of Christ but we too do this we like Paul and in Christ fill up what is lacking don't take lacking in a negative sense right just mean it means uh, remaining as it were what is remaining of Christ's affliction. And we do it as Paul, and even as Christ, in the flesh for the sake of the church 
And Paul repeats his point about being a minister, this time adding according to the dispensation of God. Some translations say stewardship. Um, I'm trying to think of another word that I saw in those translations. But the King James says dispensation. Administration. Administration. Yeah, that's the other one. Yeah. Remember last week we brought up the word uh, that sounds like economy, oikonomia? That's this word, right? So according to the wise dealings of God as the chief administrator over all things, Paul has been brought into this, right? And again, it's that word from, it's oikonomia, O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-A, if you see it in English. It almost looks like that in Greek, too. Uh, It says, This word of God through the ministry of Paul is one that fulfills the word of God. Verse uh, 25 there at the end. This has been given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. What is that word or specific part of it to which Paul is referring? If you remember the sermon a couple weeks ago from Ephesians 3, uh, it's that mystery, right? that the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles, that Christ's salvation was uh, to the ends of the earth, that had always been the point, but that it has now been revealed in a way that it had not been revealed before. Um, Yeah, verse 26, even this mystery, right? Filling full the word of God by the preaching of this mystery that has now been made manifest to his saints. And we could say that God desired to make this mystery known to his saints. And how does he summarize it? Well, there it is at the end of verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory, even you Gentiles is the point, right? That the Christ who has come is even for you and he is in you. You have this union with Christ as well. And we have a quote there on your handout from Matthew Henry. Uh, He has the last two, uh, but he speaks of the greatness of uh, salvation in the New Covenant, and it's very provocative the way that he says it, Um, and we don't need to debate it, but it is something I'd like for you to chew on. Uh, He says, the veil which was over Moses' face is done away in Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.14. The meanest saint, the lowliest saint under the gospel, understands more than the greatest prophets under the law. He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than they. And when you read some of the parables that Christ gives where he's contrasting different workers, right, that those who had labored a long time, that they would not receive anything greater than those who had labored a short time or those who had been brought in late, as it were. Right? That's kind of in the background here. But Matthew Henry even says, and I think, I think he's right, uh, and I don't know if I would say it that way, but there is a greater understanding of salvation in the New Testament, that even the lowliest saint in Christ in this age understands more than the greatest prophets under the law. Um, and then he talks about preaching for just a moment, and we will for about two minutes here. Um, He says, whom we preach, verse 28, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Notice what he's drawing back to here is verse 22, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable 
in his sight. He's drawing on that idea that the work of Christ comes to us for this purpose. Preaching is to be done in a way that includes warning and teaching, right? or an appeal to the mind, as it were. And it has an ultimate end. This is why preaching obedience, preaching the third use of the law, preaching how then we must live is so important. Right? We don't simply preach Christ in a narrow sense. If you're going to preach Christ like the apostles, you preach the implications of Christ as well. And Paul says that here, that we are warning every man by preaching, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, complete in Christ. Sounds like Paul's description of his ministry in Acts chapter 20, where he speaks of going from house to house, preaching and teaching every man. Right? Now we know Paul doesn't mean every single man without exclusion, but that he did it to all who would listen. Right? He did it to, let's say, his entire congregation to whom he was privileged to serve. And uh, that brings us to the last quote, and then I'll uh, close this in prayer unless y'all have anything brief. Um, ministers from Matthew Henry. Ministers ought to aim at the improvement and salvation of every particular person who hears them. Not every general person, right, that we would be expanded beyond our physical means to appeal to every person. And, like, if I was to visit every person uh, who visited here in the way that I visit and keep up with you all. It, it wouldn't be possible. But every particular person, every person who is under the ministry of the Word, who hears that ministry, Matthew Henry draws from Paul and says that we are to do this same work. We are to labor and strive. And notice how he grounds it. Right? This tension. Whereunto I also labor, verse 29, striving according to his working that just as he says in philippians 2 that he is working in them so paul is saying he is working in me as a minister he works in me mightily and because of that i labor and strive i make this great effort to see to it that you are warned and taught so that you can be presented perfect to christ jesus one day we got through chapter one Thank the Lord. Uh, any questions, comments? Yeah. Do you think that given the relationship between suffering and completion, that this section here would be a good like false teaching radar for us to develop where you know what's one of the tests? Is this true teaching or false teaching? I think Paul's showing us false teaching offers you suffering free Christianity. That you avoid suffering for righteousness sake. Like what's a tempted Jesus? Christ. Yeah, I mean that was immediately where my mind uh, with the temptation of Christ and his warnings throughout the gospel. They persecute me, they're also going to persecute you, and all those things. I don't, um, I don't think that's bound up in the first century just for the apostles. I think it, by extension, we know that it's the suffering of saints in all ages. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, he was hated by all people for sure. So much so that they wouldn't even get on the boat when they knew the rain was coming and they started to feel the rain and see it. Then, you know, once it was too late, the door was shut. Uh, and the prophets, um, 
this is this is one reason why you know things like the prosperity gospel are so dangerous. There's a truth in the fact that God blesses obedience, right? But it's not obedience to the exclusion of suffering. That's just Christianity. It's living like Christ. He knew the greatest blessedness any man ever knew, but he also suffered any more than any man ever suffered. And we step into that. We fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. But we also know that intimate communion with the Father through Christ. That's, that's very... You look at any of this, this stuff on television, uh, you know, any of these gospel preachers, and it's not just television. It's, it's replete in Christian circles about, oh, just because you receive the gospel and understand, you, know, you hear it and, and want to believe, oh, you're going to get cured. The big cure is what you don't see is 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 the person's salvation mm -hmm. and walk with Christ. Yeah. That's that's the big cure. Mm -hmm. God can, I always tend to yeah. suggest, look, God can work miracles. He can do it, but there's that's not the big cure here. Right. He's not required to do so. He's not required to heal our bodies in this life. He has bound himself and promised to heal him in the next. That's right. But he's not bound himself and promised to do it. That's hard to. Boy, that that is just. It's it, that's the message is on the miracle, ninety percent of the time. These days, you, you hear that. Yeah. Well, I would say even in the 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 miracles in the gospels, that the ultimate thing is not the physical healing, that it points to the the spiritual truth that's being reflected. That's why those stories are applicable to everybody, yeah. not just some. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the teaching of your word, the power of your gospel, the certainty of its teaching.